This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, back from the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester, but still carrying a conference cult. You can listen to me live 10 till 1, Monday to Friday, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. But you know that already. Coming up on today's episode, we're just going to put all the party conference stuff to one side, because there's been quite a lot of that. We know that. I've had a really, really fascinating tour of the old War Office building on Whitehall. It opened in 1906. It's where the First and the Second World Wars were fought from the the boardrooms, the offices, and the little spy corridors. And then in the 1960s, it was shut up. It's been behind hoardings ever since. It's now been turned into an amazing hotel. And I got a tour to be able to hear that in just a moment. So we'll do that. But first, it's time for these two. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And Manvi Rana's here. Hello, Manvi. Hello. And this week's Matthew is Matthew Powis. Hello, Hello. Matthew Powis. Uh, I, th- I feel like we need to rename this feature to What's Manvin Brought In This Week, which is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had donuts for the last few weeks, yeah, but this is, this is an upgrade. I, th- I thought we were bored of donuts. So what it's is this? It's an upgrade. Are we calling it an upgrade? That's brave. Uh, I, I baked. I baked. baked. Of course it's an upgrade. You made it yourself. I mean, you say that. <laughs> I don't think it's as good as a professional donut. This is nice, though. It's cake. So it's cake with raspberries in it. With raspberries in and? it. And? Uh, and a bit of amaretti biscuit. Well, there we are. Is it ultra-high processed, do you think? Well, I made it, so no. (laughs) I think if you bought it, it would be. Have you not had any, Matthew? (laughs) Yes, I have. No, I will find out in ten seconds. I want, there, was, there were two explanations. Either you didn't like raspberries or you've already had it. <laughs> or you tried my baking before, I don't know. <laughs> didn't lovely, lovely. Mm. <laughs> no, we look forward to that. I'm looking forward to Matthew. Do you bake, Matthew? <laughs> you, uh... Of course not. <laughs> it's just saying the reason I didn't do a bake well was because I'd be, I'd be found out. That's Can you imagine true, doing yeah. one for Matthew? Yeah. yeah. <gasps> maybe, maybe we should both do. Maybe we should have a bake, a bake well bake off. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, the important thing to know, it's a pudding, yes. not a tart. That's Mr Kipling, the tart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Bakewell pudding is a pudding and it's it's lovely and sloshy and it's got jam and things well, in it. I mean, this, this sounds your... like a future, a future <laughs> Thursday a feature morning, there. I reckon. Yes. <laughs> Was Bakewell actually in your oh, yes. seat? In your yes, yes, very much so, yeah. Very good. Right, go on then, let's um, put the cake away and talk about Ukraine. Um, 
so this interesting thing that Kevin McCarthy has been removed uh, as the Speaker of the House in America. It's the first time ever it's happened before. And one of the big dividing lines in politics in America now seems to be, do we want to help Ukraine or not? And that's, there's a big sort of, you know, it's just joined every other dividing line in America. But given that every dividing line in America eventually comes here, do you think it will, Maverick? Oh, I don't know. I think our attitude has been very different to the Americans. I mean, I think America, to be honest, when when the war first broke out, was very pro-Ukraine. But, you know... This incident, Kevin McCarthy, the, the only reason he was removed was because they, you know, the, some Republicans thought there was a secret deal over Ukraine and that would be crossing the line because, as they pointed out, it, within the Republican Party now, that is no longer a popular move. Um, and, you know, I think if I was sitting in Kiev, I'd be very worried that if Donald Trump wins the next election, there is no guarantee that there will be any more funding. If anything, I think we could we could all guess that that that'll, that'll stop. Yeah. You know, the last time he was president, he stopped funding to Ukraine. That was before the war. But um, you know, there's, he has no, never expressed any great support for them. Um, I think that's that's going to be over. And the problem is, American society is so fractured. They follow Trump, and you you know, you start to see it all over social media now. There's all this sort of um, conspiracy theories about corruption and where the aid money is going. And you know, it's right to ask questions, but it feels like they've already decided without doing any of the work. And I think that can travel you know we're seeing it in bits of Europe Slovakia has just had an election uh, the president you know won on the ticket of saying not one more bullet will be sent to Ukraine Poland has one in two weeks again there's suddenly <coughs> ramping up of anti um, Ukrainian aid rhetoric which is really alarming uh, and I think for us you know we, we are still very supportive but we were never providing the bulk of the aid I think that's going to leave us in a really difficult position if if other people start to pull pull aid from, from the, the, I think that, the army's going over. That's the point. We really have no agency yeah. uh, in, in this. Uh, if, if the Americans pull out, the whole thing is over. I think this uh, Congress thing is a, a, a bit of a hiccup, but it, if it's a straw in the wind... Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and if Trump gets in, I don't think that will ever take root in, in Britain. I, I think Britain, well, for, for a start, we're a lot closer to Ukraine. Well, that's the other thing, the is that States actually, are. in a way, the surprise has been that, that Joe Biden's held the line so... Because, ultimately, uh, Ukraine's a lot further away from America than it is yeah. from us, and the politics of America is so stung by Iraq and Afghanistan and for older Americans, Vietnam as well. This whole idea of being constantly embroiled in expensive yeah. conflicts a long way away. Well, think how long it took to draw America into the Second World War, yeah. for mm. instance. Yeah. Although, you know, um, if you think about the Republican Party, they were the ones who, a couple of years ago, you would have thought, said, hadn't quite realised the Cold War had ended, and now you can't get them interested in it again. And I know they've had Iraq and Afghanistan, expensive wars that have cost them a lot of people too. Uh, but this is a war somebody else is fighting. It's kind of mm. cheap at, at, at twice the price. You know, they're, they're, they're only providing kit and they're getting rid of Russia as sort of a, a proper threat for at least a generation. But it doesn't feel like anyone's really making the case in America very well. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, there's a real fear that if they do pull the plug, I'm not sure our dozen tanks are really going to yeah, yeah. make the tiniest bit of difference. And, it, and actually, this is a reminder that despite all of the publicity and who hullabaloo that Boris Johnson and then Rishi Sunak has tried to create before, that Britain's role is not as significant. Uh, it might be good for photo opportunities. But um, Matthew, you've presented me with a picture of a pudding. <laughs> Explain what this has got to do with the uh, 
the 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 glo- the global polit- the geopolitics of uh, support for Ukraine. Well, it does, and that 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 pudding is is in Kiev. Uh, yes, as, as we speak, and a friend of mine is too, and uh, sent me a WhatsApp with a picture of the pudding that he had just encountered in a cafe just close to the uh, Ukrainian secret service, and uh, the pudding is called the croissant. Boris Johnson, UK. Um, <laughs> Just in, the, in case you confused it for any other Boris yeah. Johnson. And in the on the menu, it says, inspired by the English apple pie and our mutual favourite's adorable hairstyle, dedicated to our British friends in thanks for their support in the war against Russia. <laughs> it doesn't actually look very much like Boris. Well, I, it, I have to say, I feel like I've been had. Because when we, I read your, your, your notebook of the yes. paper, Matthew, you said... Uh, it's it's uh, a bearing a tray that looks like a dollop of straw-coloured ice cream on top of a salted meringue with custard pastry egg yolk and a bit of apple. And I was picturing something circular with some hair and maybe some eyes and a mouth. Yes, yeah, you <laughs> could do that. They, they can make hair, can't they? Like you spin well, the hair is sugar so, out. so it's a sort of it's a sort of square square pastry. Yeah, and then it's got meringue on it, which has been um, sort of piped on in a sort of squiggly mess. Um, and so actually, if you put it around that way, it's slightly better. Um, and then they like, you blow it torch it, don't you? So it looks like, like so it's it's burnt. And then there's a dollop of ice cream on top. Well, actually, if you drew eyes on the, I'm going to do that. <laughs> yes, if we drew our eyes on this, this segment is going ah, to turn into bake-off. Now it's bolts completely <laughs> making sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That makes total sense now. Let's, but that's definitely Boris Johnson. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I'd want to eat something that looked like Boris Johnson. No. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a winner on a menu. I'll tell you, we would eat it. Boris Johnson. If, you, if, there's, if there's a man who'd want to eat a, a pudding of himself. Uh, a four-course meal of but himself. But it's a reminder that, you know, you probably, you probably wouldn't get one of those served in wherever it is in Oxfordshire he's no, currently living. No, no, you wouldn't. No, it is a reminder that uh, not everybody sees him as I, for instance, do. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, maybe he can, maybe a whole range of political, maybe that's what we should do. Maybe do that on the show tomorrow. We'll do politicians as puddings. <laughs> Write that down. We'll make a note of that. We'll definitely make a note of that. Well, let's talk about um, uh, the prospect of anybody making a pudding of Rishi Sunak. Uh, here's a little bit of uh, his speech from yesterday. I am proud to be the first British Asian Prime Minister. But you know what? I'm even prouder that it's just not a big deal. Now, this bit leapt out to me as being, because it is a reminder that something not happening is often as significant as something mm. happening, that a big blow-up row national debate is... Mm. Um, and it actually seems quite almost emotional. And this is not a man, you know, given that he is... Um, was it John Colshaw said to me earlier in the week, is close to being an AI bot yeah. while still being he a human? He does normally sound very robotic. But he sounded quite emotional when he was yeah. doing that bit. I think he may have been taking some uh, speech... Uh, lessons, but because the, the voice was a little lower, and it lost that kind of wheedling edge that you yeah. you often get with yeah. his voice. And I think I think he felt it. You must, you know, if you have um, succeeded, and if everybody just keeps talking about you as being Asian, uh, w- what what do you feel? You 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 feel can't we move on from yeah. this? And I, I I think he feels proud to think that he has moved on from it. And I think he has, hasn't he? Yeah, nobody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, when when he was elected, it wasn't the same as Obama being elected yeah. in in America, where you know he had this great moment. Because yeah, crucially, great nobody too. voted for him. I mean, there is that. There it was. Don't I suppose that, mention. I suppose that, nobody voted. In fact, the they thing. voted against him. Yeah. The, the grassroots of the party voted against him, but he still managed to get there. Whereas, you know, when when Obama 
sort of came to power, there was this great moment of America's had this complex relationship with race. This yeah. is a, this is the moment it's all going to be solved, even if it wasn't. Uh, I don't think there was any of that great hope. And you're right, maybe it's because he wasn't elected. If, he, um, if he'd been the leader of the opposition, yeah. and then Britain had voted for had his voted first for him, that would have been different. Prime Minister. I think also, though... He just sort of was just there when everyone else... Yeah, but also he said it. And at the same time, mentioned several times in his speech that yeah. the Conservative parties were well, the Conservative Party was the one that had, had yes, it wasn't put, a big deal, but it, it wasn't a big deal was. until he yeah, mentioned it again and again and again. Um, and I just, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't sure what the broader point was. You know, I don't think politics is suddenly in a post-race era because you know, at the same time, you had Suella Braverman standing up. Uh, you know, on the same conference stage, using you know the language of xenophobia to try and win mm. a few points, yeah. and uh, you know, I sort of think we'd be properly post-race if you could just have a politician of colour who wasn't going to have to stand up and talk about how you had to control immigration yeah. all the time. Whereas it feels like that's the only way you tend to do well as a politician of colour at the moment is to stand up and say, "I'm all right," but honestly, I, I get why yeah. you, you should be worried about what uh, everyone else. And I, I think that's very uncomfortable. You're of Asian origin, Manveen. How, how, how did it strike you at the, at the point when you heard it, as opposed to us all talking about it now? Did, did you think yes, or did you think, uh? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I recognised it. You know, yeah. there wasn't a great sort of moment mm. when Rishi Sunak suddenly became Prime Minister. There wasn't a great moment of thinking, oh, look, this is yeah. a huge leap for a community or anything like that. Um, and I think that's probably healthy in many ways. I think you, you know you want to be able to think you live in a society where you judge politicians on their policies rather than anything else. Um, and you know, I, th- I think I thought that was I thought that was fine. I just thought I, I found a lot of his speech slightly uncomfortable because he kept saying, you know, we are the party that has allowed this to happen. I am living proof that this is a country that isn't racist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and you know, I think he is evidence that we have come on leaps and bounds, but. Uh, I think his party also has a very unhealthy attitude towards race right now. Uh, you know, we saw that with the race report under Boris Johnson. Uh, and I think a lot of people of colour hearing that will sort of think, well, I'm, you know, I'm not sure it means much coming yeah, from yeah, yeah. a party with your policies. I, think, I wonder, actually, your point about the way that he became Prime Minister is so important. He basically became Prime Minister as a result of a farce rather than yeah. a national but collective But also, literally, when, when it was put to the grassroots, yeah. he didn't win, and a and lot of people thought yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that might be might because of race. Of so, you yeah, know, it yeah. seemed particularly ironic to stand up and say, hmm. here I am as evidence that that's not a thing. And Matthew, you've written about his speech in the paper today, mm. using some words we can't use on the radio. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Which we won't repeat. No, we I won't. I love columns like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I, I thought the speech went well. It, 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 it did its job in conference hall terms, and I thought he came over as more likeable than unlikable. I don't think anybody is going to like him less because of this speech, and some people might have thought, hmm, I'll give him a, a second hearing. But the actual content of the speech, uh, he says long-term. Long-term is another word for jam tomorrow, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and these things are not going to happen. And actually, long-term is quite difficult when you've already been, or your party's been in power for the long term. Yes, yes. And you're promising that well, we are going to sort those things out now. later. <laughs> yes. Not now, but later yes. on. Yes. Embarking on, you know, they, they, the whole point of uh, Michael Gove and his GCSE reforms was he thought about them in opposition pushed on from day one in government, and only now are we seeing students sort of taking them. The idea of an A-level reform being something you would unveil at the end of your mm. time in government does seem slightly ambitious. It, it is 
difficult, though, if, if you're um, a party leader in a conference, your prime minister, the election is about a year away and you are not the favourite to win the election. It's quite difficult to talk plausibly and persuasively about the long term. I don't, I don't know how you do it. Yeah. Or while also sort of billing yourself as the big change candidate, yes, which I thought yes. that was the most uncomfortable part of it. And he was so desperate to row, row back from everything that had come before that at one point he even sort of seemed to talk about himself as this is the sort of prime minister I will be. And you felt like saying, like, you already you are. are the prime minister. <laughs> you know? it's, all about, it's all about who he will be in the future versus yeah. who he has been and who everybody he's worked with has been. And given given you know the the anger over HS two riling up your predecessors to yeah. end up in a situation where all of your predecessors I think apart, I don't think Liz Truss is, I think Liz Truss is, likes the idea of cancelling HS two but Theresa May David Cameron uh, Boris David Cameron and Boris Johnson are very rarely on the same on yes. side on anything but they've criticised him over this but oh it's such to a get mess. to a position where they come out publicly yeah. to say that I mean David that contravenes so many sort of gentlemen's yeah. agreements yeah and he didn't get the tone right. On, on cutting the next stage of HS2. The tone should have been, London to Birmingham is, is great. Uh, we're going ahead with it. It will be, uh, it, it, it's more or less on course. It's going to make a huge difference. Fantastic. Unfortunately, we cannot afford the next <laughs> yeah. stage. Uh, so we're, we'll just concentrate on London to Birmingham. That would have been fine. But he actually trashed the whole idea of high-speed trains. He, he said yeah. that you know, it, it isn't about city to city any longer. People go on buses and it isn't about London any longer, which, which in a sense leaves the first part of HS2, which is going ahead, feeling that it has not the love of the government or the prime <laughs> minister. So it's a good point, that. His, his, if he just said, I'm going to bank all that money because yeah. I'm, I'm not going to bankrupt the country, yes. fine. But he's yeah. just promised to spend it in a load of other in, places. Yeah, in <clears throat> undefined, nobody quite knows how that's going to work. Well, places. there's a map and there's lots of things on the yeah. map that they're going to do. Um, I, but some I of the things were things think they said they were going to happen. Some no. of the things they said they were going to do, and then they said they weren't going to do, and said they are going to do. Yes. So the idea of yes. reaping any political benefit for putting back on the table something you took off it is, is unlikely. Right, let's go back to the beginning of Rishi Sunak's speech now and that big introduction. There's been a lot about Rishi in the media, about who he is, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what motivates him, and so forth. Now, some of it is accurate. I'm afraid he does love a good rom-com. The cheesier, the better, even. Uh, and some of it is not so true. So you'll be relieved to hear that episodes of Emily in Paris are not informing his outlook on the EU. <laughs> that was Akshata Murthy, the Prime Minister's wife, introducing him uh, for his conference speech yesterday. Is that a good idea? How much uh, should we see or indeed hear from political spouses? Well, Baroness Kate Full uh, knows all about that. She was De uh, David Cameron's Deputy Chief of Staff when he was in number 10 in Johnson. Now, hi, Kate. Hi, morning, Matt. Um, Tell us about the conversations that you had about David Cameron and Samantha Cameron. And I don't think she ever spoke at party conference, but there was always the debate about going up on stage afterwards. And is it demeaning? Is it better pictures? What yeah. was the conversation you were having? Well, first of all, I remember the Sarah Brown introduction of Gordon Brown and 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 her going, "Oh no, that doesn't mean I have to do it." <laughs> um, so that was quite uh, quite interesting. On the whole, I mean, look, it's a difficult role being um, politician's wife, especially a premier's wife. There's a bit of let's see enough, so you feel 
you see the support and the reassurance and let's not hear too much from them. So you've got to strike that balance. But in the, the particular case of yesterday, look, I thought Achata was very poised and graceful. Um, I think the content was good. She was hammering home the sort of values, what makes Rishi tick. And, um, you know, we don't know Rishi that well. He hasn't been prime minister for that long. So I think the role for her yesterday was just to show a bit more of, um, yeah, him as a family man, his values, that sort of thing. So that's why they went for it, I think. Yeah, so it was in 2008 and 2009 that Sarah Brown introduced Gordon Brown and then he lost the election. Uh, did it work for you, Maverick? <laughs> um, well, I think like Sarah Brown, there was something very humanising about yeah. it. You know, w- mm. we were saying earlier that there's something quite robotic about the way Rishi Sunak normally speaks. And suddenly here was somebody that showed he had a bit of a hinterland. Maybe he could have a laugh in, you yeah. know, in another context. Uh, I also thought it was very smart because, you know, she's now being talked of as his secret weapon in the mm. next election, whereas she would have been a massive problem in the next election if everyone had been talking about non-dom status and how rich yeah, she is. Yeah, so, you know, I thought it was um, very smart in one move to sort of Although, change the narrative. the counter-argument is, now if Labour go after her on non-doms in the election, yeah, they, they can't say... Privacy. Privacy is, you know, it's about me, not about my wife, because she's now a political property, Matthew. Yeah, she is. But I just liked it. I, I thought it was, <laughs> it was sweet. Um, she came across as a nice person. Uh, I feel curious, a lot of people must feel curious as to what uh, Rishi Sunak's wife is is like and, and we, we, we got a good sense of her. I, I have, I've been reading Times readers' comments underneath columns and I've noticed that women have reacted more against uh, Akshata's appearance than, than men. That's interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know why, but uh, perhaps, they, perhaps they feel she was being used in, in some way. I thought it was a bit long. That would be my only complaint. Yes, it was I think it would be cut in half. Yeah. I, th- I think for women, there was probably just that thing of you're wheeling out a woman to make him look like yeah, he yeah, has yeah, a sense yeah, of humour. <laughs> Kate, the but, other thing that struck me... That she's... Sorry, go on. I was just about to say, I think sort of better in a way that she spoke. I mean, the, the, the conversations we always used to have was exactly to that point, you know, is it a bit unfeminist to go and just stand on stage and wave like you couldn't open your mouth? So actually, in some ways, I was surprised it was a, a sort of bit, bit of a backlash because I think, you know, she it was good to hear, to, to hear from her. The other thing that struck me is that um, on Instagram, where she posts all the time when she's been to events and hosted people in town, she's got 243,000 followers. And it's all being built up sort of slightly under... She does this thing as well called Lessons at 10, where she takes schools into, into number 10. And they don't talk about it publicly. We're yeah. just sort of going on. And she's clearly built up, you know, a reasonable sort of online presence as well. Mm. And maybe that's something they're going to try and unleash a bit, you know, basically quietly build it up and then use it in the, in the election campaign. Well, that's sort of what Carrie Johnson seems to have done for influence reasons, I yes. think, separately. Yeah. Yes, of course, we on, on, on national radio say under the radar. Yeah. It's under our radio. Exactly. It's not <laughs> under, other, under other people's, people's radar. radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, we'll be interested to see what difference it makes. Kate, really good to speak to you. Thanks for that. That's Kate Ford, former Deputy Chief of Staff to David Cameron. And massive thanks to Matthew Paris and Manvi Rana. Uh, top marks to Manvi for bringing in the cake. Uh, look forward to look forward to the Bakewell pudding next week. <laughs> Manveen Rana with Matthew Paris there. Of course, you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. And read Matthew in the Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the old war office. Hold up. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. For as long as I've worked in and around Whitehall, this building has been behind hoardings and scaffolding. And to my left, I can see up to Trafalgar Square, to my right, down towards the Houses of Parliament. Behind me, you've got the, the home of the Household Cavalry and Horse Guards Parade, and you can see the guards on their horses. But in front of me, in this incredible building, which has undergone an incredible transformation. Now, back in 1906, it was the War Office from where then the First and Second World Wars were fought. It was the birthplace of the Secret Services. It played host to the likes of Winston Churchill, Lawrence of Arabia, Lord Kitchener and his famous Your Country Needs You campaign. Uh, John Profumo, when he wasn't off having an affair. And even Ian Fleming popped in from time to time and got inspiration for James Bond. Well, now after eight years and more than a billion pounds... The old war office is now the OO. It's home to a Raffles Hotel, a swimming pool, a ballroom, several bars and restaurants too. So you could stay in the room where the course of so many conflicts was decided. You might need to save up though. So let's go in and take a look. Wow, as we walk in, there's an amazing staircase uh, laid out in front of us and pillars and arches and I don't really know where to start, but luckily Fiona Harris, the in-house history expert of the building, uh, is here. Hello Fiona. Welcome to Times Radio. Uh, Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Explain what this what's what this building is what what can we see in front of us and how how long has it been here well matt you've just walked in the doors of the what was the old war office now fondly known as the owo this building was closed to the public it was the administrative headquarters for the british army since 1906 so for the first time this building has been restored by a family called the hinduja family and it's now open to the public it's a hotel it's nine restaurants and three bars wow so it's a huge destination. And so what you like about the British Army, they knew how to do a grand building. They did. <laughs> they certainly did. This is Edwardian Baroque in style. They it, uh, certainly knew... Baroque's definitely the word. There's sort of twiddly bits on every possible surface. There are. And you've got, what I love, being a Dorset girl, is you've got Portland stone on the outside of the building. Yep. So there's something like 26,000 tonnes of Portland stone when this was originally yep. built. 25 million bricks. Wow. Um, and the architect, original architect, was William Young, a, a Scottish gentleman from Paisley. 
and his son Clyde took over the, the building of it when he uh, died in 1901. It opened with a great fanfare. Edward VII was the monarch at the time and of course it was just before the sort of World War I period. So it had about two and a half thousand army men and women in this building, rising to around about 3,000 during World War I, two and a half miles of corridors. Wow, we're not going to walk all of them today, are we? Well, how fit, <laughs> how fit, how fit are you feeling? Definitely not in half an hour. Well, let, let's go in then. Let's go start? and explore. Let's find out some history of this amazing building. Of course. So you've got amazing columns and pillars here. Italian marble, English alabaster, which sometimes if you shine a, a torchlight behind the alabaster it's, it's this is luminous. On the, the going up the stairs this is the balustrade of the the grand yeah. staircase so we're actually just on the foot of the grand staircase this leads straight up to the second floor so if you were the secretary of state for war as it was then called now of course it's the secretary of state for defense you would go up to your office which we'll go to in a I mean, minute this looks like the set of the crown <laughs> it is sort a bit of, like that an amazing sort of you know a staircase which splits and goes in different directions there's a there's a golden clock at the top the red carpet i feel like you you, you feel like royalty don't you, do you feel a bit like royalty you do and i think Ed, in edwardian times staircases like this were designed to impress and inspire yeah. people if you think of a lot of the the buildings of that era they are grand especially the ones on on whitehall and this part and of I suppose london the period we're talking about early 20th century still clinging on to the idea of empire will yes, be not, yes. not not in the way that it was no i think you have but to look this at it was the from here that this is this is a place we ruled the world from yeah and you look at it through the filter of that yeah. that period of yeah. time this was the height of the british yeah. empire you've got amazing ceilings with plaster work i i gather there was a gentleman called james and anne who was a, a plasterer from scotland and apparently the detail he went to to create these molded ceilings was intense he didn't want to sit down for lunch because if he sat down at lunch time he said he might not get up again um, he would be too stiff to carry on the plaster work so as we go up the stairs then just give us a sense of the people who've walked up this staircase so originally one of the first people would have been Lord Haldane he was the first Secretary of State for Defence um, and his office was here in 1906 when the building opened and then of course you had greats like Lloyd George uh, Profumo although you might not call him a great but we, <laughs> He's we, certainly all, something we've heard we like the film don't we yeah. and then of course Churchill who was Secretary of State for, uh, for War and all latterly our Prime Minister but they would have all come up these stairs so it's a powerful address and a, a building which probably in many ways shaped our lives today. I've just realised coming around, I've been so focused on the staircase, this enormous chandelier hanging from, the, from yes. this incredible ceiling. It's beautiful. This is a new addition. This wasn't here when the military were here. It was hung a few months ago and it's by a company called Adogi who are based in Venice and it's obviously beautiful Venetian crystal. It's called Merides and it's got two sort of huge glass orbs with I think 96 different bulbs and it hangs from a grand dome um, and in the dome which has been yeah so the boards have come off the light is now cascading through this beautiful glass atrium you've got the ER insignia up there which is Edward VII because he was the reigning monarch when this building opened in 1906 you've got the Tudor rose you've got the crown so it is grand in the extreme but the nice thing is with this beautiful carpet um, red carpet which is um, wasn't there when the army men and women were <laughs> coming up the stairs it sort of gives it a comfort it's it's, yeah, yeah. it's comforting on your feet as you walk around the building and it actually sort of envelops you and makes you feel 
actually quite warm. It's quite cosy, despite being this enormous it is. sort of atrium. Yes. Fabulous. Where are we going next? We're going to go to the Haldane Suite. Lovely. Got big, heavy-duty wooden doors. Wow. So this is. I mean, this looks like a what I imagine it looked like what 50, 100 years ago. You're not far off it, Matt. This is the Haldane Suite. So the office of the. Secretary of State for War, Lord Haldane being the first one. It overlooks Whitehall, and in fact we're right opposite the Household Cavalry and what are the official gates to Buckingham Palace. So incredible views out of this window if we just walk up to them. And you can hear the bell chime every hour from the clock above the entrance to the Household Cavalry. You've got beautiful marble fireplaces which came actually from uh, the original army offices on Pall Mall so they were brought in by the architect of the time William Young um, to put in here I think there are around about 37 unique uh, fireplaces here made of marble which are very special it's got wood panelling which I'm told when Profumo was Secretary of State for War his wife decided she didn't like the rather male oak panelling so she painted it Wedgwood blue um, it has now been restored to its beautiful <laughs> former glory as wood um, wow who thought you could do that? You could just move into a government building and get the paint pot out? Well, obviously, Lady Profumo had her yes. way. Yes. <laughs> and we've, we've got a high ceiling here. It's about 10 and a half metres. Again, beautiful um, plaster work. And chandeliers that have been hung and restored. There's a company called Madsen Black, who I think are based in Oxfordshire. And they, the great, great, great grandfather was a, sh a chandelier maker and manufacturer and he put in many of the original chandeliers in this oh, building wow. They've to and, back and did the admiralty them. and some in buckingham palace too amazing and there's an enormous desk here is yes. that where the secretary of state for war would have sat yes this is uh, an old partner's desk and it's positioned where the secretary of state for war would have sat it's also positioned where churchill would have sat when he was secretary of state for war and of course he would have been in and out of this room throughout his career yeah. in politics the Secretary of State for War would have had this office. He would have had the Secretary of State for War's conference room, which is opposite the other side of the the um, staircase we walked up, which is now called the Raffles Suite. And then uh, along this frontage, the frontage of the building, overlooking Whitehall, you can actually take up to six rooms interconnecting as a suite. So that gives anyone the most amazing address, as it were, yeah. temporarily, to be in London and, and look over Whitehall. And just hypothetically, if I thought I wanted a long weekend to bring my friends, uh, how much would all that cost? So if you were, our rooms start from 1,100, yep. um, and then they go up from that. Yep. So have a little look-see. It's a special <laughs> occasion, isn't it? Very much so. Very, but very special. But equally, you might just want to come for a nice drink, but, a lunch, or a coffee. But, uh, but what an amazing uh, place full of history. It is. The, the it, people who sat here and the, and the decisions made. Do you know, that's the key word. I actually think this building is humbling because some of the decisions that were made here have probably changed the course of all of our personal lives because they were the big decisions of the 20th century and some quite interesting secret decisions because in 1909 there was a, a meeting with the SSB the Secret Service Bureau and Mansfield Cumming who was head of that at the time and was latterly the inspiration for M in the Bond books he pulled a meeting together to look at the original formation of MI5 and MI6 so they had their original offices here and they were born in this building and born in this building fabulous where are we going next should we try the Churchill suite yes that's what we're here for 
And how much, as we brought down the corridor, how much of what went on here is still secret? I think a lot of the documents are now in the public domain. Yeah. Um, so I can't speak for MI5 and MI6, of course. <laughs> Um, but, you know, there's a lot of history that one can read. I know yes. Jeff Hoon, our former Secretary of State mm. for Defence, wrote a really interesting history on this building, actually, which is available to anybody yeah. online, which really looks back at this site right the way back to Tudor times. In fact, pre-Tudor times, because we're sort of standing where originally York Palace would have been, the, the Archbishop of York, pre the days of Henry VIII. And then if you roll around the period of Henry VIII, then this was where he had his Palace of Whitehall, which was actually a 27-acre site, so we're within the footprint of that. Most of the Palace of Whitehall burnt down in a fire in 1698, Banqueting House being one of the few remaining yeah. structures. So within the square footage of this building, Henry VIII would have lived, ate, slept and passed away. He's obviously buried at Windsor now. And I suppose that's just a reminder that the seat of power, whether that's kings and queens or prime ministers or sectors of state for war has been within this small part of London for it such has. a long time. It's, it's, it's been a seat of monarchy, it's been a seat of government administration. Oh come on, let's, let's see if we can get into the church or soon. Okay, it's a bit of a walk because oh, don't it? forget we've got two and a half miles of corridors. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to introduce you at this point to the wonderful Emile, who is our expert. Emile, good to see you. Mr. Chorley, very good nice to see to meet you. you. Thank you very much. Nice You're going to tell us all about the Churchill Suite. I mean, so it's spectacular. Well, I don't really know where to begin. Just t tell me what, what I'm looking at and how significant it all is. So, for me, and I think for a lot of historians as well, this would have been the nerve centre of the building. So, the most important room out of the entire site. Uh, it's been very much restored the way it used to be. Of course, it's missing a lot of the martial decorations that would have been uh, back in the day here. For example, the whole room would have been strewn with maps. There would have been flags of the regiments of the British Army hung on the wall in order of precedence. And of course, now we have a very nice meeting table in the center of the room. But back then, the table would have spanned the room from one end. So one fireplace all the way to the other. And who is sitting at those tables um, and what are, the, what are the meetings that they're having? So uh, that would have been the members of the army council and sometimes officers as well who were called in to brief. For example, a very funny story actually. In the First World War there was an officer in charge of so the Department of Information how to convey messages from the front to the back lines and he was uh, called in to brief about the use of carrier pigeons. But because there was always a kind of like sense of severity in this room because some serious subjects were discussed here, he wanted to alleviate the situation a bit, introduce some laughter by making a joke. So he said like, why don't we cross the carrier pigeons with parrots so we can give them the report, they'll fly in and do the report themselves. <laughs> the joke didn't really work because he got thrown out of the room. So. Uh, the people sitting here would have been the bigwigs yeah. of uh, the British Army, so the Quartermaster General, Master General of Ordnance, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, sometimes the Secretary of State of War would come as well, although he was a busy man so he would not always be yeah. here. But the main subjects that were discussed, as I said, how to convey messages yeah, from yeah, the front yeah. to the back lines, where to attack, how to set up a campaign, how many troops will we need, will we reset up some fortifications. So the whole conduct 
of a certain conflict or even in peacetime how to organize the army and so on and for example even in 1909 the creation of the secret services would have all been discussed and made in this room it's incredible and i suppose part of, part of me is thinking about anyone who's been to the somme or you know some of the, the trenches and in france and so on if you're in this room making those decisions, you're so far removed from, you know, what an amazing, you know, high ceilings and wood panelling and chandeliers and thick carpets, just a million miles away from what it was like on that front line, moving people around on a map. You know, you're a long way from the, exactly. the dirty business of war. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean... I wouldn't say there's a sort of detachment from those officials back then because a lot of them were actually, especially during the First World War, officers that come back out of retirement because yeah. everybody who used to work here before the war and, for example, in the interwar period after the First World War, you know, would have been called to the front. So during the war, it was a lot of ex-officers here okay. who knew what it was like yeah, to yeah. be on campaign. So they did not just move little pieces they of wood knew, on the map or they knew what, they knew what exactly what yeah. uh, coupled i mean it's an amazing hotel but to be in thinking about what went on here the decisions exactly, and the yeah. drama and the secrets and all that exactly so i mean like i said back in the day there would have been a very heavy atmosphere here maybe not a lot of laughter and yeah. so on so nowadays we kind of changed it a little bit it yeah. went from a martial atmosphere more to more a designer atmosphere yeah. and we hope there will be more laughter and you yeah. know reunions and so on in here except of just you know very heavy talk about how to change the world basically. <laughs> so. more jokes about parrots exactly yeah, definitely oh mil thank you so much for showing us the moon no mood. problem fantastic at all. good to I see hope you. you enjoyed it So where are we now? You've brought me to another grand room. I, I don't. Have. I get the feeling there are no bad rooms. No. Nope, <laughs> yet another. You know, it's just yet another high ceiling, chandeliered, wood panelled room overlooking ancient buildings in in Westminster. But it's named after rather a special lady. Go on. It's named after Christine Granville. So we call this the Granville Suite. So Christine Granville was Polish. She was an aristocrat and she became a spy during the Second World War. There's rumours that she was Churchill's favourite spy. There's rumours she had an affair with Ian Fleming. She was quite a lady. And in fact, there's a, a book called The Spy Who Loved by a really good historian called Claire Mully, which is worth reading. And that tells you all about her life. So when you talk about her being a spy, where, where was well, she? Well, she was collecting intelligence yeah. for the Allies. Um, and there are rumours that she used to ski across the border out of um, enemy territory with... Uh, documents secreted into her gloves so she could get through enemy lines with uh, information that was really essential to help us move forward and win the Second World War. And I suppose it's, that's just a reminder that pre-digital communication, if you want, the, and actually the most secure way mm. of passing on intelligence was to do it physically. Absolutely, original source documentation. Yeah. Yeah. So nothing could be um, AI manipulated, Absolutely it was original, yeah. original source. It all hidden in her gloves, amazing. We feel that it's quite nice to make a special feature out of some of the women that worked behind the scenes during the Second World War. So this is one of those suites, and we've got a, a range of other suites named after female spies like Christian Lamb or the Nairn Sisters or Vera and that, Atkins. And that's because it's quite easy to do your Churchills and your, you know, yes. the Haldanes and the, the men who were running the show. Yes, sitting at the big bit table of girl making power. the yes, but behind the scenes there were women involved a and lot. actually. 
and in front of the scenes and but, get, but get written out of the history sometimes exactly so we are making sure that we yeah, yeah. sing from the rooftops about all the women who played their part during the uh, 20th century so this is one special lady and one very special suite now we're standing in the bedroom which is enormous and very grand with a full poster bed interestingly this was originally the levy rooms and we're in a room which would have had a conference table where SIGS or Chief of the Imperial General Staff would sit at the head of it. It would have been a V-shaped conference table because the theory was if he sits at the head he can look at everybody in the eyeballs <laughs> and work out whether they're trustworthy or not. Where there's a bathroom, there's a rather beautiful bathtub, huge oversized shower, that's where his office was. So that's where you'd go to either be court-martialed or promoted. But wow. now where his desk is, there is a beautiful copper bath. That looks incredible. Oh my goodness! So, so normally you'd come in here with some trepidation. You would, if you were, you were, yeah, if you were in trouble. Back in the day. Yeah. But now it's it's enormous. The the ceilings here are around about ten and a half meters, yeah. and you've got a beautiful copper bathtub, huge shower, and loo. Is this the shower in here. Yes. Wow! I think I've lived in flats smaller than that. That's incredible. It's very special. It's yeah. like having, I guess, a rain shower in a forest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Where have we come up to? This is an amazing view. We've come up to the fifth floor, and we're now in what's called the turret suite, with views right down over the House Hall Cavalry, the parade ground, down over St James's Park, to Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace, out of one window, but that's not all. That's not all. So <laughs> <laughs> we walk round, an amazing view of Big Ben. Down Whitehall, see the Houses of Parliament, uh, the, the gates of Downing Street, um, the Cenotaph. This is where, on one of these buildings, this is in, um, there's a Bodden film, isn't it? That he appears on the roof the, this, of a building. This absolutely Skyfall. Yes, Skyfall. In fact, scenes from five Bond movies have been filmed in or around this building. So it's got a real legacy with that yeah. Bond. Let's have a look see what's out this side. Well, that, from there, so that's the, that's the Ministry of Defence and the London Eye. And then looking, well, that's looking across the river, though, isn't it? So that's the, the old Shell building. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're looking to the London Eye and you've got... Whitehall Court and all the beautiful apartments that yeah. were built just before this building. And then back over that way then you're looking up towards Trafalgar yeah. Square and Nelson's Column. Completely. And another fun fact I love yeah. is that the Household Cavalry Parade Ground, where Trooping of the Colour takes place, back in the day of Henry VIII, that used to be what was called the Tilt Yard, and that's where all the jousting took place. Oh, really? Yeah. You have a good view from up here. So but you'd have a very good view <laughs> if this had been built then. Well, what an amazing way to end our little tour. Just a reminder of, you know, you've got Buckingham Palace in that direction, Parliament in that direction, Trafalgar Square in that, that direction, Min the, the, the Ministry of Defence as it is now. Just a reminder of what sort of central spot this has been in the, in the history of the country. In the history of the country and never been open to the public. Yeah. And now for the first time, open to the public yeah. so everybody can come and enjoy it and see London from a perspective that they've never seen yes, before. Yes, that's so true. I feel like I've seen Big Ben from most angles, but now it's, I've seen it from a new one. A new one, Yeah, Absolutely. fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Fiona, for giving us a tour of the OWO. And uh, Raffles London. And Raffles London. A fantastic, a fantastic location. Right, right smack down. Our right pleasure. Right. Come yes. back again. We will do. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Catch me on Times Radio from 10 Monday to Friday. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.